good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, it's Brian here over at Hartford. Um, we'll probably get started now. I realize you know Mondays are a tough day because a lot of people have clinics and a lot of people are transitioning you know off of nights and onto nights. So I'm sure if there's more people to join, they'll be logging in shortly. Um, today the topic will be electrolyte emergencies, um, and this is going to be hosted by our, our PGY3 resident Terry Kimoso. Um, so. Uh, it's a very important topic. I mean, these come up all the time. It, and I think the slides are going to be something that you want to keep in your back pocket because they're very comprehensive and there'll be a lot of pearls shared today. So please be sure to pay close attention. All right, I'm going to start the recording and then uh, we'll also get started with the PowerPoint slides. Okay. Oh, wait, I can share the screen first. Excellent. Okay. Hey, everybody. Uh, Perry, one of the PGY3s. We're going to talk, be talking about electrolyte emergencies today. Uh, couple of learning objectives. Um, so I think the, the most important things that we're going to be talking about today uh, is uh, how to basically manage a person with uh, hyperkalemia, because that is probably by far the most uh, dangerous electrolyte emergency. We'll be talking um, also about some things that are likely going to help you when you're cross covering uh, overnight, especially how to replace um, these specific electrolytes, specifically uh, potassium, magnesium. I'll also talk about um, phosphate as well. And we'll also briefly touch on how to um, approach a patient that's experiencing symptomatic hypercalcemia. Uh, but first we're going to touch upon, you know, what typically happens when these patients experience these type of electrolyte derangements. Starting with uh, hyperkalemia. So, um, all the things that you're seeing on the slide right now uh, are typically experienced by patients when they are getting, you know, very, very high uh, when it comes to uh, potassium levels inside of the blood. Um, we're talking uh, around like seven uh, milligrams per deciliter when it comes to uh, potassium levels. Um, so, when you see anything on this, um, specifically these when it comes to EKG changes. So this actually kind of manifests differently at, at different levels. Uh, and these different types of complications also do tend to uh, occur differently. So when I say that, I mean that if a patient has chronic um, hyperkalemia, their threshold that will sort of trigger these symptoms to happen will be higher than those that have acute changes um, in their potassium levels. So starting from top to bottom, you'll see that these patients can uh, suffer from severe muscle weakness. It is an ascending type of muscle weakness that can mimic Guillain-Barre uh, symptoms. However, sphincter tone and cranial nerve function is typically spared uh, and respiratory muscle weakness is fairly rare. The things that we as physicians worry about in the clinical setting by far the most are these, uh, these cardiac manifestations. Um, I'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, how we work up these types of patients that have hyperkalemia, um, but by far, uh, you are pretty much always going to want to get an EKG. Um, and like I said, uh, these, these sort of progress um, differently based on the severity of the hyperkalemia. 
Uh, you'll first experience tall peak T waves, shortened QT intervals. Then you'll experience PR interval lengthening as well as QR restoration. The P wave ultimately disappears, and then you'll get um, sort of sine wave pattern. Unfortunately, uh, and this is an extremely important clinical pearl, uh, the progression and severity of these changes really do not correlate well um, with the serum potassium concentration. So despite the fact that you might have somebody with tall peak T waves, that does not mean that they can very rapidly change into a sine wave pattern. Um, you'll also see here that there are a bunch of different uh, conduction abnormalities and arrhythmias. And of course, you'll see by far the most dangerous ventricular fibrillation and asystole associated with hyperkalemia. I also thought it was relevant to include this last pearl here. Um, reduced urinary acid excretion. So hyperkalemia does interfeel, interfere with the kidney's ability to excrete ammonium, um, which results in the development of metabolic acidosis. And if you remember basic physiology, um, what happens um, when it comes to extracellular and intracellular shifts of hydronium ions and potassium, they are pretty much exchanged at an equivalent rate. So what happens is if you have an acidosis, these hydronium ions are shifted into the cell, potassium is shifted out, which results in actual worsening of the hyperkalemia, kind of like a cascading effect, okay? Now I'll move on to hypokalemia. And you'll notice that um, a lot of these are, are fairly similar. Uh, however, there is uh, one significant difference, and that is here uh, at the top when it comes to rhabdomyolysis. So very similar um, in regards to the pattern of weakness, uh, usually begins in the lower extremities, progresses upwards. However, um, you'll see that there's also involvement of the gastrointestinal muscles, and you can get ileus, anorexia, nausea, and vomiting. Um, but by far the most important part about this hypokalemic picture is that potassium is very much uh, intertwined when it comes to vasodilation uh, in uh, musculoskeletal tissue. So if you have profound hypokalemia, you can actually diminish the blood flow to muscles during exertion. Um, and I'm, as I'm sure you're all aware, rhabdomyolysis, uh, the intracellular concentration of potassium is dramatically higher than outside. So if you have these cells that are lysing, uh, this release of potassium can actually mask the severity of the underlying hypokalemia, which could lead to normal or high values. So in some instances of hypokalemia, it would be prudent to get a CK value just to make sure um, that that is not the case. In regards to cardiac manifestations, you'll see depression of the SD segment, prolongation of the QT interval. Um, you can also see uh, U waves as well. In regards to arrhythmia, by far the most dangerous, and this is probably the highest um, association when it comes to this type uh, of arrhythmia with electrolyte derangements is for SODs right here. Very important to recognize that. Uh, also, renal abnormalities, you can have prolonged hypokalemia, which can cause impaired concentrating ability uh, of uh, the kidney, which increases ammonia, increases bicarb reabsorption, alters sodium resorption, um, and can also elevate blood pressure. Now we're going to talk about hypercalcemia. So um, a lot of different things that can happen with this uh, electrolyte derangement. Um, very uh, different, uh, can affect a multitude of different uh, sort of organs throughout the body. Um, so I guess we'll just walk through each one individually. Uh, there are a lot of different symptoms that can happen with this. Uh, so neuropsychiatric uh, disturbances, uh, by far the most common symptoms can be anxiety, depression, 
and cognitive dysfunction. This is the big one here. Uh, when you are getting to these symptoms underneath here, lethargy, confusion, stupor, and coma, this is signaling that there is a very severe derangement of calcium on the order of 14 milligrams per deciliter. Um, very important that you address these issues before it gets this high, essentially. And we'll talk about how you approach these types of patients as well. Gastrointestinal symptoms. So the most common symptoms are constipation, uh, anorexia, and nausea. You can have two separate issues um, that develop with um, hypercalcemia, including pancreatitis and peptic ulcer disease. And a sort of pathophysiology is different for each of these. Uh, for the pancreatitis, you'll actually see deposition of calcium in the pancreatic duct. Um, and calcium actually activates trypsinogen, which if you remember is a like sort of protein degrading um, enzyme in the pancreas that's responsible for sort of breakdown of food contents and is normally uh, excreted into the duodenum. So when it's activated prematurely, it actually results in breakdown of the pan pancreatic parenchyma, which is why you can get pancreatitis. Peptic ulcer disease, on the other hand, um, calcium-induced actually uh, basically increases ga in gastrin secretion. And if you'll remember, gastrin is responsible for increases in the amount of acid that are excreted um, inside of the stomach, and then henceforth you can get peptic ulcer disease. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, um, cardiac myocytes directly rely on calcium for the uh, amount of sort of contractility um, that they use. So you can actually um, get differences in the myocardial action potential, uh, which is reflected in a shortened QT interval. Um, and you can have arrhythmias if there's a severe enough hypercalcemia. In regards to musculoskeletal symptoms, by far the most common symptom is muscle weakness. Um, you can also get bone pain that can occur in patients with this if it's due to malignancy or hyperparathyroidism. That's pretty straightforward when it comes to like a pathophysiology sort of picture. And then we get to the renal dysfunction. So hypercalcemia can really wreak havoc when it comes to um, renal dysfunction. There are a multitude of different um, things that can occur when your calcium is high. I mean, it could affect the, the renal tubules, the kidney itself in a, in a multitude of different ways. Um, the things that we typically most see most frequently are these top two issues, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, uh, as well as nephrolithiasis. Um, so in regards to the diabetes insipidus, this hypercalcemia can lead basically to a defect in the concentrating ability um, that induces polyuria and polydipsia. And you can also have activation of normal calcium sensing receptors uh, that basically impairs the, the ability of the loop of Henle um, to appropriately identify the amount of calcium that's present inside of there. Um, so it impairs its concentrating ability. And then, of course, nephrolithiasis. This is the thing that we think about most often when it comes to hypercalcemia. Um, however, it's actually mostly due to hyperparathyroidism or sarcoidosis, um, and especially if it's longstanding. So you'll get chronic hypercalciuria. Um, and then that those uh, high amounts of calcium inside of the um, essentially urine um, just amalgamates into um, nephroliths, essentially. You can also have these other two, renal tubular acidosis and renal insufficiency. Um, so this can cause type 1 distal renal tubular acidosis, can contribute also to the development of the nephrolithiasis as above. 
And you can also get the renal insufficiency. However, these are in really you know, even extremely high, even higher than what we were talking about on the previous slide, uh, on the order of 12 to 15 milligrams per deciliter. Um, luckily, though, this is a reversible fall. Um, so if you do address the underlying uh, electrolyte derangements, you should um, have a, a return to baseline glomerular filtration rates. Uh, because this is mediated by direct sort of renal vasoconstriction and naturesis induced volume contraction. So, uh, can also lead to calcification, degeneration, and necrosis of the tubular cells. This is when we're talking long standing on the order of years. That's why it's very important to identify this. If you're starting to see, you know, uh, differences in regards to renal function. Uh, as well as this on the BMP, it's extremely important because, like I said, it's reversible. Once you get to this level, when there's calcification, degeneration, and necrosis, it's it's almost uh, irreversible. Now I'll talk about uh, hypocalcemia. So, um, can also have a very wide range uh, of symptoms when it comes to hypocalcemia as well. Uh, chief among them, uh, and the most common symptom by far, is tetany. Um, they can be mild, so you can get perioral numbness, paresthesias, you can have muscle cramps, uh, or severe symptoms, including carpopedal spasm, laryngospasm, and generalized tonic muscle contractions. The second point right here is extremely dangerous, okay? Um, you can, so unlike uh, in regards to potassium, where it is extremely rare um, for it to affect the respiratory muscles, um, hypocalcemia can induce spasm of respiratory muscles, okay? And if you have spasm of the respiratory muscles, especially uh, of the glottis, um, this can cause cyanosis. So it's extremely important that you address this essentially immediately. Other sort of autonomic manifestations include diaphoresis, bronchospasm, as well as biliary colic. Um, you can also have a multitude of different um, dangerous issues, including seizures and cardiovascular manifestations as well. The most typical are generalized tonic-clonic, generalized absence, as well as focal seizures. Um, these will show both spikes as a convulsive effect, as well as bursts of high-voltage paroxysmal slow waves. Um, similar to our hypercalcemia issue, uh, and like we already discussed, cardiac myocytes rely on the concentration of calcium inside of the body for both conduction um, as well as contractility. So if we're having issues with calcium uh, levels inside of the body, we're going to experience decreased myocardial performance. And sometimes you can even experience congestive heart failure as well. As well. This can be transient and reversible. So as long as you are appropriately repleting the amount of calcium, this can be reversed. This is a sort of transient issue that's simply due to the fact that there is not enough calcium inside of the body to drive those two different factors I was talking about earlier. In regards to EKG changes, you'll see prolongation of the QT interval, um, as well as prolonged phase two of the action potential. You can get papilledemia as well as psychiatric manifestations, most common being emotional instability, anxiety, depression, um, and less common as well, but these are most typically with severe states are confusional, hallucinations, and frank psychosis. So, um, the thing that we're probably most likely going to be seeing inside of the hospital uh, are those patients with hyperkalemia. Um, these are people that typically have issues um, with the excretion of potassium. 
Um, those, for example, with chronic kidney disease, those with ESRD. Um, you can also see uh, issues with potassium in those with congestive heart failure uh, and what have you. So when you're when you see a patient come in with hyperkalemia, um, it's very important to triage the patient in regards to what when we need to uh, address the potassium level and how quickly we need to address the potassium level. Okay. Um, and that is based on a multitude of different factors, which I've included up here. Um, it's very important um, that we really do not miss anybody that falls into this hyperkalemic emergency bucket. Okay. Uh, patients needing prompt therapy and patients who can have potassium lowered slowly are those that are less urgent um, and can be um, given um, sort of uh, treatment modalities that will act less quickly. Um, but even still, we have to address the potassium levels um, no matter what. So in regards to hyperkalemic emergency, uh, pretty much any patient that has those signs or symptoms of hyperkalemia I was talking about are considered a hyperkalemic emergency. If the potassium level is high enough that they're starting to cause symptoms inside of the body, that really needs to be addressed immediately. Okay. Um, by far the most serious manifestations, muscle weakness, paralysis, cardiac induction abnormalities, and cardiac arrhythmias. Okay. And like we talked about on that hyperkalemia slide, these are really um, patients that you're going to see if the, the potassium level is above or equal to seven, um, or those that have had a very, very acute change um, in their potassium levels. Other things uh, in regards to hyperkalemic emergency, those that have a serum potassium level in 6.5, um, however, they have a concomitant sort of uh, condition that could lead to an increase in the amount of serum potassium, okay? That includes those with gastrointestinal bleeding or concurrent tissue breakdown. Uh, like I said, uh, with the sort of rhabdomyolysis, there's a very high level of potassium inside of the cells. If we're experiencing muscle breakdown, um, we're expecting that the serum potassium will actually increase, uh, which is why we essentially need to address these patients uh, as well. Or um, even those with a moderate hyperkalemia. Um, and as you'll see here, um, the reason that we need to include these patients is in the bucket is, is that they might have significant kidney uh, impairment. And as I'm sure you're all aware, renal function is extremely important when it comes to excreting potassium from the body. So if a patient has an impairment of their kidney function, they are not going to be able to excrete that potassium as appropriately as uh, you know, a sort of patient that has healthy renal function, essentially, okay? Um, so we include this uh, at, at a lower level because we're expecting them to be unable to excrete that potassium. And similarly, um, those with ongoing tissue breakdown, uh, in addition to rhabdomyolysis, you can have a crush injury, tumor lysis syndrome, um, ongoing potassium absorption from cysteine gastrointestinal bleeding or significant anion gas metabolic acidosis. Okay, so these are the patients that we really have to be cognizant of and address immediately. These other two buckets are a little bit less in terms of acuity. Um, so these that require prompt therapy include those hemodialysis patients that present outside of regular dialysis hours, people with like marginal kidney function or marginal urine output. Um, as well as hyperkalemic patients who need to be optimized for surgery. Okay. Then those that can have potassium lowered slowly, um, pretty much everybody else uh, when it comes to um, low levels. Uh, typically, you'll see this is pretty much at the high end of the range. 
Um, moderate is considered 5 to 6.5 uh, elevations in serum potassium um, due to chronic kidney disease or use of medications. These are the people um, that are having like very slow chronic rises in their potassium. So um, it would sort of, you would expect um, that we can also address the potassium in a slow manner as well. So what are the first two things that we need to do when it comes to hyperkalemia? Uh, and it is really, these are the two by far most important things that need to happen um, when someone comes in with hyperkalemia, okay? The first is obtain an EKG. Second is administer cardioprotective agents. That you absolutely have to do this, okay? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. This is like, this is it, okay? You have to get the EKG, um, and we'll, I'll address this as well. Uh, and you have to give intravenous calcium, all right? We really need to um, protect the cardiac myocytes um, from essentially uh, advancing into those advanced forms of the arrhythmias that we were talking about earlier, okay? Ventricular fibrillation and asystole. Um, so when it comes to the EKG, we touched about this a little bit briefly in the hyperkalemic uh, slide a little bit earlier. Um, so here is a normal sort of... Um, a beat on an EKG. We have a P wave, the QRS, and the T wave. And like I said, um, with increasing severity of the hyperkalemia, you will experience differences um, in um, the um, sort of P, QRS, and T wave. And this is as you go down this list, um, sort of correlates with increasing severity of the hyperkalemia. So the first sign that you will see is this P T wave, as you can see here. There's really no change to the QRS or the P wave, but as you'll notice compared to here, that the T wave is significantly higher than it was prior. Um, moving on, as the severity of the hyperkalemia increases, you'll see that now we are starting to experience both a change here in the QRS, as well as the distance from the P wave to the R wave over here. Okay, and we still have the presence of this peak T wave. And then finally, we just have complete loss of the P wave as well as a sinusoidal wave, okay? We really do not want to get to this. Um, so, oops, sorry. Let's see. So, um, in regards to the cardioprotective agents, uh, calcium uh, is by far uh, the thing that we use the most. Um, we will, can use either calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Um, fairly rare for us to use calcium chloride. Calcium gluconate is pretty much the go-to. Um, and I think that is usually due to the fact that um, calcium chloride um, can cause local irritation um, at the injection site, uh, despite the fact that it is, uh, if I remember correctly, around eight to 10 times as potent um, and sort of like an equivalent milliliter dosing as calcium gluconate, okay? So this directly antagonizes the membrane actions of hyperkalemia, thereby protecting cardiac myocytes. And that being said, um, this effects are, are almost instantaneous. This is working on the order of like seconds to minutes when you're administering it. So very much important from a time management perspective that this is given as soon as possible. Okay. Um, with that being said, the uh, sort of life uh, of that is actually relatively short lived. So it's on the order of 30 to 60 minutes. So this sort of gives you enough time to bridge you um, to the sort of interventions that I'm going to be talking about in regards to getting the potassium a little bit lower, okay? Now, that being said, um, you can repeat this pretty much every 30 to 60 minutes if the hyperkalemic emergency persists, okay? 
the typical dose for this is uh, what was it? A thousand milligrams infused over two hour, uh, two to three minutes, um, and you can typically give it twice, pretty much like on the hour. Okay. Um, because this kind of gives you enough time to address the underlying issue, which is the potassium um, and, and what have you. The usual dose of calcium chloride is 500 to 100 milligrams, also infused over two to three minutes. Um, and obviously, uh, just given these EKG changes, as well as the changes that can happen with hyperkalemia, extremely important that you're monitoring these patients on cardiac monitoring. Um, here in Hartford Hospital, there are a multitude of different reasons that you can select for um, telemetry, and one of them is severe, moderate to severe um, derangements in potassium level. And this is exactly why, because you want to be aware of these changes are happening pretty much as soon as they are happening. Okay. So, um, this is a pretty busy slide, but we'll go through it slowly. Um, these are the medications that will act very quickly. Um, when it comes to um, lowering um, your serum potassium levels. Um, the thing that we use by far the most uh, is insulin with glucose. Um, I myself have less frequently used beta-2 adrenergic um, agonists and even less uh, frequently than that sodium bicarbonate. So from top to bottom, the beta-2 adrenergic ag agonists act very similarly um, in regards to insulin with glucose. As you'll see over here, um, they have direct activity at the beta-2 receptor on the cell surface. Um, this beta-2 receptor increases the activity of the NAK ATPase, um, thereby directly um, moving potassium ions from outside the cell into the cell, okay? Um, however, that being said, the amount of albuterol, and this is by far the most uh, typically used um, agent, is uh, 10 to 20 milligrams, and that's four to eight times the amount um, of the dose that we give for bronchodilation. So it's an extremely, um, extremely high dose, okay? Uh, in regards to the effect of this, this is actually um, probably one of the most potent agents that we can use, and it can lower the serum potassium concentration just by itself by around 0.5 to 1.5 mil the equivalents, okay? So very, uh, very much uh, a, a good um, thing that you can use um, if, you don't get the desired effect with insulin with glucose. This is by far the thing that we use the most when it comes um, to um, lowering serum potassium, okay? Um, and this is pr can pr pretty much um, act as like a monotherapy uh, when it comes to, to lowering it. Uh, beta-2 adrenergic agonists as well as sodium bicarbonate really should not be used by themselves um, when it comes to addressing potassium levels, okay? Um, insulin, though, uh, is by far is like the go-to when it comes to lowering potassium. Um, so, if you are considering a, a patient with severe hyperkalemia um, and you need to rapidly reduce the amounts uh, of uh, potassium, your go-to is going to be insulin. You can add on beta adrenergic agonists, um, and if the patient has like an acidosis or what have you. You can also add on sodium bicarbonate. Okay. <clears throat> there should be an order set, I think. In that it is, yes. So this is uh, actually an order set in uh, in uh, Harvard Hospital here. All of these are in that order set as well. I think it includes EKG, everything. You just type in hyperkalemia, just click a few, a few buttons, and all of this will essentially come up. So very, very handy here inside of this hospital. Um, 
Insulin acts very similarly to the beta adrenergic agonists in regards to uh, increasing the activity of that NAK ATPase for driving uh, potassium into the cells. Um, however, there are a lot more complications, unfortunately, when it comes to this. Um, obviously, insulin also acts to drive down the amount of glucose uh, in regards to the serum. Uh, so we have to be very cognizant of uh, lowering that essentially too much and causing dangerous hypoglycemia, okay? Um, so typically insulin is given with glucose um, and you can actually consider only giving, glu uh, uh, I'm sorry, you don't have to consider glucose if the serum glucose is above 250, okay? So the most typical sort of regimen is giving 10 units followed immediately by 25 grams of glucose and then essentially monitoring glucose levels every hour for five to six hours to make sure that we're avoiding that hypoglycemia, okay? Um, this also causes a very significant drop in the potassium levels of around 0.5 to 1.2 milliequivalents per liter. So not as, as potent as you would expect compared to the beta-2 adrenergic agonists. Um, I also think it bears mentioning epinephrine is listed here. I have never, ever seen epinephrine given um, for hyperkalemia. Should probably avoid that, okay? Um, also on this list is sodium bicarbonate, and you'll see here, and like I sort of touched upon earlier, hydronium ions are exchanged one-to-one -one in an equivalent rate from the extracellular fluid to the intracellular fluid, okay? So if you have an acidosis, what is essentially happening is that hydronium ions are moving into the cell, potassium is coming out of the cell, and thereby raising the amount of potassium inside of the serum, okay? So um, it would posit that if we lower the amount of the acidemia, that we would be able to drive some of those potassium ions back into the cell. And that's essentially the pathophysiology behind this, okay? However, unfortunately, sodium bicarbonate really has limited efficacy when it comes to this type of issue. You're really not going to get um, much in the way of efficacy in a patient, for example, with a normal pH. Um, but you might find some uh, drop in the levels for those that have acidemia, okay? And like I said before, this really should not be used um, as the only treatment in the acute management of hyperkalemia, okay? This is typically given 150 milliequivalents, one liter, 5% dextrose. Only thing that you have to be cognizant of is that, you know, this is quite a large amount of fluid. You really want to avoid this in those patients that have, let's say, for example, ESRD or heart failure, okay? That's the only thing to be cognizant of those. So, we also have medications that lead to potassium excretion. So, the previous slide, um, the only thing that's really changing in regards to the potassium is that we are simply moving potassium from the extracellular fluid into the intracellular fluid. Um, if you think about it from a whole body potassium perspective, they're really is no change whatsoever. We are simply lowering the amount of serum potassium to make sure that we don't run into those dangerous um, sort of side effects um, when it comes to the arrhythmias of hyperkalemia. However, with these medications, these actually lead to excretion of potassium. This is how you are going to get it out of the body completely, okay? Um, and by far, the things that we use the most are loop or thiazide diuretics. Uh, these act in different areas of uh, the uh, sort of uh, renal glomerulus uh, and uh, have different sort of functions. But the most common sort of linking factor between the two is that they essentially uh, enhance the amount of potassium that is delivered to the collecting duct. 
Uh, and as a result, you get increased amounts of potassium secretion there. Okay, they uh, act at different parts. Um, loop diuretics work in the loop of Henle, um, as their name suggests, and thiazide diuretics uh, work at the distal convoluted tubule. Okay, um, the thing that we have to worry about, uh, very similar to what I was talking about for sodium bicarbonate, um, is we have to be very cognizant of the uh, amount of volume um, that the patient has. Um, if a patient comes in with heart failure um, and is experiencing hyperkalemia, we have to be very um, sort of uh, aware um, of their fluid status um, and what have you. So we really have to dose these medications um, based on the volume status of the patient. Okay. Um, in hypervolemic patients with preserved kidney function, um, you can give um, 40 milligrams IV Lasix BID or a Lasix drip. And euvolemic or hypovolemic patients with kidney function uh, preservation, uh, you actually want to administer isotonic saline uh, as well as diuresome, which is a little bit paradoxical if you think about it, right? You're trying to like diurese someone, but you're also giving them fluid back. Um, I don't know if you guys have sort of looked into the contents of our intravenous fluids, but normal saline has zero milliequivalents of uh, potassium inside of it, okay? Which is primarily why we're using it. Lactated ringers, on the other hand, um, does. Uh, I can't remember the exact uh, amount of potassium in it, but that's typically why we avoid lactated ringers in patients with, let's say, ESRD, for example. Okay. So we're giving NS to uh, appropriately replete that uh, volume status and then giving them also 40 milligrams IV, BID, or a Lasix strip. However, and those with uh, which kidney function is not preserved. Um, we have to use intravenous isotonic bicarbonate or an isotonic saline infusion plus intravenous rosemitic doses that are appropriate for the patient's kidney function. Um, this is kind of murky waters um, and can kind of have like its own topic in and of itself, unfortunately. Uh, as you know, the entire point of these medications is to essentially break what is normally happening inside of the kidney. So if the kidney is not functioning appropriately, we really have to tinker around with the amount and the dosing of the medications that we're giving in the first place. Okay. Um, that being said, um, similar to our previous slides, these diuretics really should not be the only thing um, that are used to remove potassium. Okay. Uh, we really have to use these kind of in tandem uh, with one another. So we're going to give insulin, then we're going to essentially diurese the patient. Okay. Um, and finally, kind of like our last line of defense for these types of things as well. Oh, sorry. One more thing. <laughs> um, other thing that I forgot to talk about. So um, we discussed earlier the patients that have um, different types of buckets, right? And we said that hyperkalemic emergencies we have to address immediately. Those that need prompt lowering or those that can kind of have slow lowering. Okay. Um, and these uh, other medications, these gastrointestinal cation exchangers, um, are typically used in those patients that are on those lower two. Um, you can have um, some that have a relatively quick onset of action, but these are typically uh, um, used in those that we don't need a very acute drop uh, in the potassium levels. Unfortunately, these act on the order of hours, whereas those other medications work on the order of seconds to minutes. Okay, they will act very quickly in regards to um, changing the levels of extracellular shifts of potassium, excretion of potassium from the body. Um, whereas if you look in the top right, um, 
the onset of action of these can be anywhere from an hour to seven hours, and they have variable durations of activity. Okay. Um, these medications include SPS, uh, Petiromer, uh, ZS9. Um, all of these are cation exchange, uh, exchangers. Um, so they basically bind potassium inside of the gastrointestinal tract um, and make sure um, that it is essentially excreted um, from the body. Um, now, kidney. The kidney is primarily responsible for excreting potassium from the body. Now that being said, you can have around 10 to 15% of your daily potassium um, losses um, is actually from the gastrointestinal tract. So this can um, contribute to lowering potassium levels as well. Okay. Um, so uh, all these different uh, have uh, all these different sort of uh, interventions have different durations, different onsets, and they also have different efficacies. Um, the thing. I don't even know if I've seen these other two medications, um, zirconium uh, as well as pteromer. We typically use kyapsulate, and I don't even—I don't even think I've seen these uh, for or available to order here. Pteromer we use. Pteromer, Altasa. Oh, right, Altasa. Right, right. Um, so I pretty much exclusively used SPS. Um, however, there are a couple of uh, different things that I guess we'll talk about in regards to its use. Um, so. Um, for zirconium, you can see a mean reduction of 0.7 four hours after a 10 gram dose. For kyaxalate, you can see the mean reduction of 0.93, approximately 24 hours after a 15 to 60 gram dose. And for pteromer, you can see a reduction of 0.75 um, over the course of 24 to 48 hours. Okay, this is probably the the best if you're looking for a very slow reduction um, in this, and you have a patient with like chronic kidney disease that we're really sort of worried about pushing them into like an acute kidney injury by using diuretics and what have you. Okay. Um, despite this SPS, kyaxalate being the most efficacious, there are a lot of side effects and some of them can be very severe, um, and that we really want to avoid. Okay. Chief among them intestinal necrosis, uh, extremely dangerous. Um, the, so there are a lot of pretty much absolute contraindications for using this medication. Okay, uh, pretty much anybody that is post-operative, patients that have an ileus or are receiving opiates, uh, people with large or small bowel obstructions, or patients with underlying bowel disease such as ulcerative colitis, C. difficile colitis, basically anything affecting the gastrointestinal tract, you really do not want to use this medication, okay? It will basically sit there, it will necrose the gut, the gut um, and you will run into a, a lot of different issues, all right? Uh, so just be very cognizant uh, if you are ever ordering this medication. I think there are, um, at least here, um, they do a very good job with those sort of um, like alerts coming up in regards to patients with like previous um, bowel surgeries, um, bowel issues, things like that. Um, so, just keep that in the back of your mind. Finally, dialysis. Okay, uh, pretty much anybody coming in with uh, a hyperkalemia, uh, hyperkalemic emergency, um, really should have a nephrology consult. Okay, um, we're dealing with rapid changes to electrolytes that can result in some pretty severe morbidity and mortality for our patients. Um, so. Um, we can use hemodialysis essentially as to mimic um, kidney function and clear out uh, potassium uh, fairly quickly. Now, that being said, um, I think over the course of my like two years thus far, I've probably seen around like three to four patients require like urgent hemodialysis for um, high potassium levels. But even still, 
Um, it is always prudence to get nephrology on board um, and sort of question the need uh, or urge for hemodialysis in these types of patients. Okay. Uh, that being said, um, if the patient is uh, okay for hemodialysis and you need to sort of bridge them to get there, you're still going to be using all the other things that I was talking about earlier. Okay. The point is we need to reduce the amount of potassium uh, as quickly as possible to make sure that those cardiomyocytes, cardiac myocytes are protected. Okay. And then essentially we want to make sure that we're performing hemodialysis as soon as possible, if it's appropriate. Okay, so this is probably going to be uh, these next two slides are by far um, the two most important slides for you guys. Okay, you are going to get hammer paged by nurses overnight asking to replace potassium. You have no idea like what's the most appropriate thing. What do you use? How many milliliter equivalents do I give? How frequently do I give them? So. Uh, Please make sure they should pay attention to this. Um, the goals of the therapy are obviously to prevent um, the side effects or the complications of hypokalemia that we were talking about earlier. Okay. Um, and the urgency, similar to hyperkalemia, sort of depends on the severity of the hypokalemia uh, as well, as well as the associated or comorbid conditions. Okay. There are a lot of different formulations of potassium. Uh, you have potassium chloride, potassium phosphate, potassium bicarb, uh, as well as potassium gluconate, okay? Um, and there are different sort of uh, appropriate circumstances that you would use these types of medications, okay? Uh, potassium bicarbonate is preferred in patients with uh, concomitant hypokalemia metabolic acidosis. That kind of makes sense, all right? We're addressing the um, acidemia uh, as well as the hypokalemia at the same time. Uh, potassium phosphate, very similar, concomitant hypokalemia and hypophosphatemia. We're repleting both of those electrolytes at once. Um, mm -hmm. It reduces the total amount of sort of fluid that we're giving instead of individually addressing the potassium and the phosphate. Um, and then pretty much potassium chloride is preferred in all other patients, okay? Um, it raises potassium concent uh, concentration dramatically faster than pretty much all those other two uh, modalities. Um, and um, chloride as a sort of um, anion in this uh, cation anion exchange uh, does promote maintenance of that potassium. So it's actually going to keep the potassium levels high and make them higher for extended periods of time compared to the other two formulations. Okay. So, what do we want to do when it comes to replacing potassium? Uh, the most common rule that we use is that for every 10 milliequivalents, we are going to get a 0.1 millimole per liter increase in the potassium levels. All right. So if you want uh, your potassium to be four and it's 3.6, we'll give 40 milliequivalents. If it's 3.2 and you want to raise it very quickly, you'll give IV 40 potassium and PO 40 potassium at the same time. Uh, because that will raise it by 0.8, okay? Uh, now, that being said, um, there are a couple of caveats to this rule. Um, the two most important ones by far are that if a patient is severely hyperkalemic, they're likely going to require more than 10 um, to raise um, the uh, concentration by 0.1, okay? 
So just overshoot a little bit if they're severely hypokalemic. On the other hand, and this is extremely important and probably why a lot of your seniors, when you're asking these questions, um, ask you, what's the chronic medical conditions of the patient? If they have an AKI, if they have CKD, if they have ESRD, like we talked about, their ability to excrete potassium is dramatically lower than other patients, all right? So we actually have to undershoot the amount that we're giving them. Uh, typically, the rule is around like 50%. I tend to err on the side of caution and use around like 75% of the typical dose, okay? So if the patient's potassium is like, let's say, 3.2 and you want to get it to 3.6, I would really only give 10 milli equivalents of potassium in these types of uh, patients, all right? They want to be very cautious because these patients have a lot of difficulty excreting potassium, all right? Um, that being said, this isn't as, um, I guess, relevant to us as the attendings. It, it is absorbed readily from the gastrointestinal tract and it is significantly less costly. Um, the oral potassium compared to the intravenous potassium, okay? Um, that being said, if you need to reach um, or give anything above 40 milliequivalents, 40 milliequivalents is the maximum dose you should give with um, oral medications. If you need anything above that, for example, 60 or 80, you should really be giving two separate doses spread out by four hours to allow for appropriate gastrointestinal um, absorption of the potassium that we're giving. Okay, um, for those that you want to get rapid uh, onset, you can use an oral solution or IV solution. For those that we need to sort of act slowly um, that are having chronic losses, you can give standard re or sustained release tablets. Okay, um, similar to SPS, what I was talking about earlier, structural, pathologic, or pharmacologic cause for delay or arrest of the GI tract are an absolute contraindication. All right. Very similar to SPS. You want to pretty much avoid that at all costs. Okay. So we've gone over extensively hypercalcemia. Time. Um, so we'll talk about uh, hypercalcemia. Um, there are a bunch of different interventions. Um, the ones that we're really going to be focusing on are saline, calcitonin, and uh, bisphosphonates. Okay. Um, in regards to um, the levels of uh, hypercalcemia that we're typically experiencing symptoms, um, you're typically getting symptoms around 12 to 14. They're mildly symptomatic. Um, and those above greater than 14 uh, really require aggressive therapy. And we'll get into the aggressive therapy of those uh, in the next slide, uh, as well as those that uh, similar to potassium have an acute rise in the calcium as well. Okay. These are all the different sort of interventions we'll, we, we can use, but these top three are the ones that we're going to be talking about. Because uh, as you'll see um, here on the onset of action, um, for the aggressive therapy, similar to potassium, we want to address it immediately. So we want those with an onset of action very quickly to address the levels, okay? Uh, as you'll see, all these other ones, glucocorticoids, denosumab, uh, calcimimetics, all take days. Um, to onset. So they're really not going to address the acute issue um, when it comes to lowering the levels of calcium inside of the body. Um, saline is by far the thing that we use the most, and it corrects uh, volume depletion um, as well as urinary salt wasting. 
Um, rate of infusion depends on a bunch of different things, but basically the rate that you're looking for is 200 to 300 milliliters per hour. Um, and then adjusted to maintain your output at a 100 to 150 milliliters per hour. Okay. Um, just because this is a lot of fluids, you really need to be careful to monitor for fluid overload, especially in those patients um, with, uh, let's say, for example, heart failure. Okay. Calcitonin um, reduces the serum calcium concentration by increasing renal calcium excretion, as well as decreasing bone resorption. Uh, very safe, relatively non-toxic, and you're actually going to get a very large amount uh, of decrease or, and it's fairly effic efficacious um, quickly. You're going to see one to two milligrams per deciliter around four to six hours after um, the administration of the medication. Okay. Um, and then finally, bisphosphonates, these are by far the most efficacious when it comes to lowering um, calcium levels inside of the body. But if you'll remember from the previous slide, it takes a little bit longer for these to have effect around 24 to 48 hours. Okay. So you want to give all of these at once. Um, similar to potassium, you want to use saline and calcitonin to bridge you to the bisphosphonates, and then you use the bisphosphonates because they're by far the most efficacious. Okay. Um, these work as non-hydrolyzable analogs of inorganic pyrophosphate, adsorbs the surface of bone hydroxide. I can't say that. Inhibit calcium release, interfering with osteoclast-mediated blood resorption. Okay. You'll remember there are a lot of different side effects with these medications. Um, any sort of esophageal pathology is typically contraindicated. You need to take them before meals. You have to be sitting upright for like 30 minutes just to avoid um, sort of erosive esophagitis with these medications. Something to be cognizant of. Other things to, to replace. So you'll also probably get paged uh, overnight about replacing magnesium. Uh, a lot of times in patients with cardiac uh, abnormalities, we want to keep potassium above four and magnesium above two. Um, so uh, there are a bunch of different options that we use. There are one IV form magnesium sulfate and one oral form magnesium oxide. Okay. Uh, magnesium sulfate is pretty much the gold standard when it comes to replacing magnesium. Um, that being said, um, there is a downside to this and that uh, I believe every one gram replacement has around 100 milliliters of normal saline in it. Um, so we have to be cognizant in those patients that we're trying to avoid um, volume overload um, that we don't use too much of this. Okay. Um, and then the downside to magnesium oxide tablets, and this is, you, you have to remember this, this causes diarrhea. Okay. Um, for patients that are septic, um, patients that already have diarrhea, um, or worried about like C. difficile, you really do not want to be using this medication. You will make the diarrhea worse, um, cause volume depletion, and what have you. Okay. Um, very, you have to be very aware of that. Uh, in regards to the levels that you will do um, for mild hypomagnesemia, we can typically use magnesium oxide, 400 POBID. Um, for moderate, uh, we can use two to four grams of magnesium uh, sulfate IV. And then for severe uh, asymptomatic hypomagnesemia, those with less than 1.2, um, we'll typically use two grams of IV Q6 to Q8 hours or continuous IV infusion, looking to get around four to eight over a 24-hour period. Okay. Life-threatening hypomagnesemia, this really means for SODs or seizures, uh, we load uh, with pretty much four grams over the course of 60 minutes and then start a magnesium sulfate infusion. Okay. I have never seen this um, since I started residency. 
Um, that being said, these, these uh, are more so you're probably going to be repleting a lot of magnesium. Okay. Um, that being said, um, I am a firm proponent of the Andre Gabriel uh, method of magnesium replacement. He was the third year when I was an intern, and he basically said, just give a ton of magnesium and do not worry because it's almost impossible for you to harm the patient by giving them too much magnesium. Okay. Uh, phosphate. This is also um, something that could come up. You're typically going to see these patients, these this in patients um, that have um, severe cachexia, um, alcohol use disorder. Um, it's very rare for you to have sympt symptomatic hypophosphatemia, but sometimes you will follow it. Um, you can also see derangements uh, in those patients that have ESRD as well. Okay. Um, so uh, you can use either oral or intravenous uh, replacement for this. Um, in regards to oral replacement, uh, phosphate greater than or equal to 1.5, um, you can give 40 to 80 millimoles. Uh, less than 1.5, you want to give up to a maximum of 100 over three doses. Uh, those with severe obesity can actually get the maximum initial dose of right. Um, just given the amount, uh, like I guess the mass involved, uh, and those with reduced GFR should receive approximately one half of the suggested dose. Okay, and here also the intravenous uh, replacement guidelines as well. Um, so for the serum phosphorus concentration, um, you'll use this amount uh, in regards to millimoles per kilograms. So as the amount of the severity increases, you are increase concomitantly increasing the amount or the dose that you're giving. Okay. And similar to other IV forms, there's actually quite a lot uh, of volume in these um, these replacements. So you really have to be cognizant of the amount that you're giving. Okay. Um, and the amount that you're giving is also over uh, a course of time. So in those patients that were worried, for example, if someone comes in with anemia or something, uh, they're a vascular path, they're cirrhotic, they only have one peripheral IV. Um, you really have to be aware of managing that IV appropriately. Okay. It's inappropriate to utilize an IV for six hours straight um, to give IV uh, phosphate. Okay. So you should prefer oral phosphate in those types of situations. Okay. Um, I'm sure I've covered a lot here, um, and there's a lot of different things that will come up over the course of internship. Um, but it's really just a learning experience, you know, um, as you address these situations, you'll remember like certain scenarios that you've replaced these types of electrolytes in and the appropriate sort of situations in which you would administer them. Okay. All the examples that I've used today are examples that I've experienced over, you know, the two or so years, um, since then, because you really have to be aware of the sort of, uh, benefits and the drawbacks of each of the different types of electrolyte replacement. Okay. That's pretty much it. Thank you. Thank you, Perry. Does anyone have any questions? You would like to say what a wonderful job you did, and we have no questions here at St. Francis. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Snuggle. Anyone here with questions? No? All right, Perry, thank you very much. Of course. Appreciate your time today. Oops. If you ever want to appreciate how dangerous acute hyperkalemia is for the heart, just ask yourself, 
what's an illegal injection? Yeah. It's, that's, that's, yeah. Right. Okay. 